Before we start this episode, I'd just like to thank our two sponsors, Toon Boom and Storm Effects, for supporting the creative community and making this podcast possible. I also recommend that you take a minute to go to mastersofmotion.com.au and have a good look at the work we're about to talk about. It really improves your understanding and experience when listening to the podcast. Alrighty, let's get into it. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with Kelly Liner, a co-owner and director at 12 Field Animation Studio. Kelly started out as a junior animator in the late 90s. Throughout her career, she has worked at the highest levels in animation, production design, producing, and as an animation series director. She has worked on top animation TV series, including The New Adventures of Ocean Girl, Quads, Dogstar, and Little J and Big Cuz. Kelly made her series directing debut on the award-winning series, The Flaming Thongs. Thanks very much, Kelly, for taking the time to share your experiences and knowledge with us. No problems. Thank you. When hiring for a 2D production, what do you prefer to hire, juniors, mids or seniors? We look for all three and we always offer entry-level positions as well. So in design, rigging and animation, we like to have that hierarchy So they're the three departments, design, rigging, and animation. We have storyboard, edit, which takes over animatic as well as post-production, design, rigging, animation. That's kind of the the basic uh, breakdown of the pipeline. When you're hiring, do you prefer to get people who are generalists or do you prefer to get people who are specialists? A lot of the entry-level applicants are a bit more generalists. And at that point, we can say, I think you'd be good in design or I think you'd be good in animation. Yeah. But usually we do receive applicants who are specialists. They want to apply for animation. They want to apply for design. What are the main attributes you're looking for in an animator? We look for people who are great to work with for a start. It's about a team. We also look for people who display good the principles of animation. So, you know, have a go at um, squash and stretch. Your timing is very important. Yep. It's always nice to have someone who's had a go at lip syncing. Often people out of uni have done a non-speaking short film, (laughs) but lip syncing is such a vital part of being an animator. So have a go at it. We don't necessarily require people to be experts at the program we're looking for. Yeah. As long as you know how to animate, we can teach you how to use a piece of software. You might like to have an animation piece of software under your belt, and after a while you get to sort of discover that a lot of the software is user-friendly in the same way. So how do you get a gauge on their level of software? We like to meet people before. We don't just hire over email. 
um, we like to have an interview with that person. Do you look for highly finished work or do you look for work that just shows the attributes of good quality animation? In a showreel, we do like to see finished animation, but often I might see the same scene, especially in student work, in a group project. So it's important to say what actual component of that shot you worked on. Were you the key poser? Were you just the the ink and painter? Did you composite it together? Yeah. If there's nothing there, I will assume that you've done the whole thing. Yep. For group projects where we've got someone who's doing the keys and someone's cleaning it up and doing the in-betweens, it's important to say what actual part of that shot you worked on. And what should their website and showreel contain? If a showreel has really nice finished work, I will usually try to dig a little deeper into that applicant. Okay. And that means I will go online. I might have a look at their Instagram account. I'll have a look at their website. The website or Instagram account is where you put your work that perhaps isn't as finished, your processes, some rough work. Yep. I I still really like to see all that. Is there any work you wouldn't put online? It really does need to be your best pieces. If you're not happy with something, don't put it up there for the public to see. When you are applying for a position, it's always good to still tailor your work to that studio. We still see a lot of applicants who send me a showreel and it's mostly modelling and 3D. Yep. And we don't do any of that. (laughs) So it's much easier to apply for a 2D role if your work is only 2D. If you've done lots of animation in 3D, can you still see a crossover for those sort of people? Definitely can see a crossover. I, what I'm saying is if you send me a reel that's entirely 3D, yep. I will automatically say we can't hire this person because I can't see that they have even got a, you know, a 2D piece of software under their belt. Yeah, you'd prefer 2D people over 3D people. Yes, but I have seen... We've taken people who have a small component of 3D in their show reel. Okay. The principles of animation exist in 3D and 2D. So I can tell even by their 3D work that, oh, they've got really nice posing and nice timing. But generally, yes, we do like to see that you've also had a go at 2D. Switching over to design and illustration, what are the main attributes you look for in a designer you're going to hire? Generally, my say on the design applicants, I would have input, but it would be the choice of someone else. Yeah. What we do look for is great lighting and really nice spatial awareness as well. Also, when you're designing for 2D production, it's important to have an idea of how the room may be used with characters in it. Yep. So not filling it with lots of stuff. You need to give some breathing space for the actors to be in that space. From an animator's point of view, what do you look for in a portfolio from an illustrated designer? Some of the things that are great to put in a a design portfolio is drawing lots of different things. You might like to try environments, nature, cityscapes, interiors of rooms, uh, underwater, different lighting states of those. So one at nighttime, maybe one during dawn, uh, one in the daytime. And also have a go at drawing props as well, cars, cutlery. Adding in those elements into an environment is also really important. Yeah. A lot of 2D production design is locations and some props, but also have a go at characters as well in your design portfolio. It's really nice to see what kind of character designs you can come up with. What's the best way to get a contract on a production? Just emailing 
that or if you actually bump into someone in a networking event, shake hands, say, hello, I'm so-and-so. And then following that up with an email is always really good. Yep. Most creative studios, if there are positions available, will then ask you to come in and say hello. They want to meet you first before they bring you in as part of the team. They may say there aren't any positions available at the moment, but please keep an eye on our social media feeds. People will do call outs on social media feeds or use, you know, a forum like the DLF or Oz Animate that have sort of job postings to go there. But I think sometimes just following that studio on a social media feed, Twitter or Instagram, is some of the best ways that you know that there's something going. When you're starting a production, do you get most of your people from advertising jobs or do you get them from people you already know? Definitely a mix. Usually most of our team is people we've worked with prior, but also half half new people who have replied. Is there a percentage of people who are sort of good and known or is it more that you're generally looking a lot out there? We're looking more than we were in the past. I think a lot of the people we worked with regularly in the past perhaps have moved on to other things. So we do look a lot more. What TV, movies and magazines or books inspired you when you were growing up? I was a big fan of Astro Boy. When I was growing up, there was one TV channel because I grew up in sort of far north Queensland. I think it was just the ABC. So there was this very small section of the afternoon, probably from, you know, 3.30 till 6 when... Peter Russell Clark came on and then the news Yeah, where there actually was, you know, children's shows. Things that inspired me were really dictated by what was being presented by the ABC at that time. I know Astro Boy was a big one. Yeah. Disney movies, The Little Mermaid, I remember watching over and over and over again as a kid. But then to be able to see Battle of the Planets and Astro Boy was really exciting. Is that what led you to be interested in having a career in animation? In grade 10, I made a friend of mine go and see Aladdin in the cinema. And, of course, I adored it. But then at the very end, I was sitting there and then the credits rolled and all these names came up. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is a real career. I could really do this for real life. Yeah. That's when I think that moment clicked and I thought I would really like to do this as a career. Was it a wise choice? I absolutely love what I do. It's hard at times, but I can't imagine doing anything else. It's almost like a passion project. Can you briefly describe your career path? How did you start working in animation and then move into production design and progress into directing? I did a Bachelor of Visual Arts at QCA and uh, finished that in 97. And then I went straight down to Melbourne because there wasn't really much going on in Brisbane at the time. And I started work as an in-betweener, pencil and paper, and then worked my way up to clean up, and then I became a junior animator, and that was on The New Adventures of Ocean Girl. Okay. It was a short stint as the traditional animation sort of pipeline of working, because not long after that, in the late 99, 2000, I was offered to go over to Perth and work on quads. And for the first time, go digital and learn Flash 4. Oh, my gosh, amazing. So that was my introduction into digital animation. Do you think that learning to illustrate on the light box was handy for you later on? Understanding what a key pose is as opposed to an in-between 
And also having an innate sense of timing because it was all done on a dope sheet helped me later on. I didn't let the program do it for me. Yep. Flash was amazing in that it was very uh, responsive. If you if something wasn't working, you could just change that keyframe and then you can watch your timing straight away. In, in the past, you'd have to put it down on a dope sheet, have someone scan it for you, watch the rushes back. So it was a little bit lo- more of a longer process, but it meant you got a very strong sense of this will work and this will not work. After Ocean Girl and Quads, where did you move on to next? After Quads, which was probably about a little over six months in Perth, we came back to Melbourne and uh, there wasn't really much going on at that time, but there was someone in Sydney who wanted us to work on a pilot. And so myself and a couple of other people who had gone over to Quads said, well, why don't we form a company and we will work on this project? We knew the pipeline, we knew how to get the work done. That's how Big Kids Entertainment was formed. And did you run Big Kids for many years? For about eight to ten years. And then after a while it became clear that we would we were working a lot on large projects with, the, with this other company consistently called Square Eye. And it became clear that for us to work on long-form productions, we would never not work with this other group of people it was much vice versa for them as well. Like they wouldn't take on a large project without asking big kids. The discussion then became, well, why don't we just form into one company? And that's how 12 Field came about. Yep. And then 12 Field has been running now for about 10 years. So over the years, which projects do you think are the most successful and satisfied you the most? In terms of satisfaction, I think um, the Flame and Thongs, that was great for me because I was asked to be the director of that project. Nice. Up until that point, I'd been an animator and then I'd sort of moved a little into the design side. I was a design coordinator for the second series of Dogstar. And so I felt like I had a really good understanding of the pipeline at that point. I was across animation. I was across design. I was sitting next to the director of Dogstar, Scott Vandenbosch, and so I could in some ways, shadow him and see, well, what does it take to be a director of a 2D animation show? So when the opportunity came up and the invitation to, would you like to direct this project? And I thought, yes, I'm going to take that because I feel like could do a really good job. Cool. And is there any other projects that you enjoyed working on or that had a big impact in your career? Little Jay and Big Cuz, which was an Indigenous show And I feel that that show means something to Australia. So I really like that. Yeah. The other big project that has been a real success for us is The Strange Chores. It was the first show that we've taken on board where we've moved away from our animate pipeline and adopt the Toon Boom Harmony pipeline, which was a really steep learning curve. Yep. And it's been amazing. And what do you think of Toon Boom? Having come from a traditional background... I felt it was a step back towards those old techniques. And so I've really enjoyed seeing what's come out of our animation department. And are you planning to continue using Toon Boom into the future? Absolutely. You'd recommend it? I would definitely recommend it to others. So for students who are out there, they should be learning both Animate and Toon Boom? It's important to know how a puppet style of animation works. Okay as opposed to something that's a little bit more hand-drawn. So Toon Boom can do both. 
So puppet style is really what Animate does best. Toon Boom, TV Paint, um, you have the ability to sort of do these lovely straight-ahead animations, hand-draw into that program. Have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them? We had to let big kids go at the point when we merged to create 12 Field. And having spent so much time trying to build this entity with two other people who are amazing artists and who are my very good friends, it was a difficult choice to make. What are the hardest things you had to learn to progress your career? You can't do everything. (laughs) At some point, you do have to let your team work with you on realising your vision, let's say. Yep. You know, that those people, because they've really got one thing to do and you've got lots of things to do, they are the best person to take on that task. Do you remember seeing your name in the credits for the first time? I remember seeing my name in the credits on Ocean Girl, possibly not quads. <laughs> Maybe at that point I thought, yeah, that's all right, I've made it now. <laughs> I remember when... I remember when my grandma rang me up. I was working on Stinger's TV show and she's like, I saw your credit. It's fantastic. You're working on a TV show. And I was like, yeah. I remember feeling super chuffed when I saw my name in the front credits. Nice. Out on the Flame and Thongs, you know, director Kelly Liner. Because the difference between being in the front, you know, with the executive producers and, and all those types of people and then... The end credits, so is it going so fast you can hardly see your name? You've just read your name and it's going to the next card. Yeah. But it was a really big moment for me to be in the front credits on the Flame and Thongs. Yeah, well, I've never made it to the front credits, but (laughs) (laughs) I was very happy in the back credits. Yeah. What led you to set up Big Kids Entertainment? Someone in Sydney had said, I'd really like you to make a pilot. We thought, well, we'll just be kind of a bit more organised. And part of that organisation was, well, we'll form a proper company. And so we had applied for sort of like a, it was a bit like a government grant. It was called NICE, which is the New Enterprise Incentive Scheme. Yep. That was fabulous because essentially we got the um, Centrelink allowance for t- a 12-month period, which meant that we could grow our business as best we could in that time without necessarily having to worry about, you know, how we were going to pay our rent and our food. Yep. So any of the work we did during that time, we could just put that money back into the business. That's interesting. Buying more software, some more hardware, getting out and promoting ourselves. And that was really wonderful. Centrelink payments were a lot more back then, but it's good for people who are like trying to break out in the industry to see that you went from unemployment to starting your own studio and used that to make that step, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I... (laughs) We weren't just saying, let's just form a company. We were aware that there's an administrative side to running a business as well. And that's why we kind of explored this NICE program because we knew we needed the help in that area. Yep. I'd never seen a cash book. I didn't know what expenses and incoming outgoings were. So to go through this program to be able to say, this is what it is, it was fabulous. So NICE also did you some sort of education around business planning and that sort of thing? Yes. Essentially, we were being taught this is also how to be a freelancer. Who were the other founding partners and where are they now in the industry? Anne-Marie Denham and JC Reyes. Anne-Marie is now working for the League of Geeks here in Melbourne and JC Reyes is working for Moose Toys. What are they doing? They're still in the creative arts. I'm not sure whether they're animating, but I feel... 
them having that experience of animation has led them to be better illustrators or yeah. all the crossover. Anne-Marie has done a little bit of 3D as well. Cool. You know, it's just sort of all fed in to what they're doing now. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about the work you're doing in this period. We had made a few pilots for people. We'd done a little bit of commercial work. And we had also continued to take on long-form animation series, but let's say we might be a team that might have taken on five whole episodes of something. We took on episodes of the second season of Quads. Yeah. Put our hand up to take on episodes of Dogstar Series 1 and Series 2 as well. And you had a small studio space, I imagine? We did have a small studio space. Being sort of a bit of a start-up, we didn't have... uh, you know, <laughs> lots of fancy things in our studio. It got very hot and very cold. Yep. You know, we had toilets and running water, so I was happy with that. What location? It was in Carlton in Melbourne. I had an office in Carlton. I love working in Carlton. I reckon that's pretty cool. What year did you move in at? I believe it was about 2001. And so we would have. it was only about a year of working from home. You can get really bad cabin fever yep. living and working from the same space. There's a temptation when you're at home to just continue working till 11 or 12 at night. Yeah. We felt that we needed a balance there. It's a real issue now with all these people working at home. But back then, to have a studio, people didn't work from home. They had spaces. It's interesting how it's changed. It's sort of reversed. More people working at home, less people having studios. And that cabin fever is a real issue. People are more aware of the balance now. Yeah. You know, they want and require that even though they're working from home. They're very conscious of starting and finishing at particular times. You know, being more aware of the spillover. People who are successful generally tell the story that they worked really hard at the beginning. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine how people can be really balanced throughout their career and not do the hard work to actually make the progressions. Don't get me wrong, there were many late nights at Big Kids working to deadlines or, you know, discovering, as I did one night, that I deleted a whole bunch of very large PSDs from my server about 11 o'clock at night having to jump on my bike and ride home and get my backup copy and then ride back to the office and I'm there till 4am. There's been been quite a few of those, but I think it's just that choice. We need a space that is ours, that's the business space. Yep. What are the biggest challenges facing new studio owners? You have to work on the business instead of in the business. That was one of the big things about big kids. We were working in it all the time, whereas really you do need someone on the outside going out and sourcing the work. And we were having to do two at exactly the same time. So that was very difficult to do. How do you get out of production and do more sales? It is a difficult thing to do. Eventually, you would need a team and some senior people that you felt comfortable leaving them in charge of projects instead of having you there all the time. Yeah. Once you're at that point, then you can sort of leave them to take on the creative work and then you can go out and be the face of the company. What were the benefits of merging the two companies together? The benefits of creating something new was rounding out a holistic pipeline team We felt that Big Kids was really strong on the animation side and Square Eye were really strong on the design side. When we merged together, we felt like we were a strong package to take on any project. How did your role change after the merger? I was really keen to 
continue on the sort of the coordination and the production management side of things. The people that we'd merged with were so fantastic. They were all amazing artists and I felt like I would rather coordinate these people and build new teams rather than try and not necessarily compete but, you know, they were just so much better at what they did than I could do whereas I felt I would really like to build teams and manage those people and those that talent. You became more of a manager and less of a hands-on person? I did, yes. Tell us a little bit about 12 Field's history and culture. The people who are running 12 Field have been in the industry for a really long time. We're not people who necessarily have to learn the pipeline from scratch. Yep. It's, it's almost like we have a, a quite a long-standing history behind us. We have all come from that traditional pipeline of pencil and paper, watercolour backgrounds that have to be scanned to be turned into shots. And uh, to come from that and then move into the digital side gives us, you know, we, we kind of yearn to have those projects that really have that traditional feel. Do you do any TVC work or do you mainly just do large productions? We do take on a little bit of concurrent work, but our core focus is really the long-form series. And when you're in production, describe the size of your studio. So when we're in production, we have anywhere from 30 to 40 people running through the the series. Uh, The studio is basically broken down into, you know, your upper management and administration which would be the production assistant, the director of that particular project, scene planning, design coordination, and then it's broken down into your storyboard department, edit, which takes on animatic, there's design, rigging, animation, and then post-production. Cool. And uh, do you do any sound as well? No, we actually don't have a recording, a sound recording component at our studio. We have a long-standing relationship with Labsonics, who we've done all of our sound recording work with. When you're not in production, I imagine you scale right back down. Yeah. How do you do that and how do you like think ahead so you've got money in the bank to go from production to production? Well, luckily we do have uh, someone who manages our finances for us. So. <laughs> okay. But we do go down to a core team of three or four people when we're not in production and they sort of keep things going. We're looking ahead to the future, we're developing ideas and also small projects that might come in at that time, we're able to manage those. We might At that point we might get someone in or we could, the people that we've worked with before, we tend to might offer them a little bit of freelance work. And I know that you go and work on your pipeline in those periods. Yeah. Um, and work on sorting out your office and getting everything organised for the next production. It'd be great if you could tell us about your pipeline. What software, hardware do you use? So we are a PC-based studio. We're not Mac. We have a couple of Macs. Mac is uh, sort of our edit suite, but the bulk of the studio is PC-based. Yep. In its spare form, we use Toon Boom Storyboard to get our storyboards working it then we use photoshop for our design component and then toon boom harmony for the animation side of things or in the past and even now still we do some small projects through animate we will design and animate in animate okay and you're still using photoshop a lot yeah 
Yes, we do use Photoshop a lot. You know, Photoshop is probably still the most powerful tool to achieve any look that you want. Do you have people working externally in the production or do you do it all in the one location? As much as possible, we like to have an in-house team and we try to put as much as possible through our studio. That being said, we also have um, times when we will have some satellite people working interstate or they may want to work a few days from home and we will accommodate that as best we can. Can you describe your collaboration with Media World? We have a long-standing relationship with Media World Pictures. They will often come to us with large projects and we will put our hand up and say, yes, we will be the service provider for that particular project. Yeah. That being said, it's not necessarily Media World saying, you will do it like this. It's very much a collaborative relationship. They may secure a project and then we will come in at very early stages to discuss the full scope of that work. Okay. The size of the team that we may require. What is the best process for us to bring this project to life? Are we going to go animate an animate pipeline? Are we going to continue on and use Photoshop and Toon Boom? Maybe we might even explore doing the whole thing through Toon Boom. They're the sorts of things we discuss very early on. And what are the benefits of having a partnership with someone like Media World? The benefits is that there is a huge section that is, I think, often quite difficult, which is going out there, shaking hands, going to international events and conventions yeah it is i'm guessing it would be quite expensive you know having relationships with people in different parts of the world at this point the people at 12 field um don't necessarily have that so to be able to secure those long form projects you do really need someone who can bring those projects to you they go out and source different funding partners and those sort of things to make the whole project work That's correct. A producer, executive producers, they're the people who are going out securing funding from government bodies as well as funding from possible distributors and overseas investors as well. We're just going to pause for a minute, Kelly. Okay. For a word from our sponsors. We'll be back in under a minute. Toonboom Animation Inc.'s award-winning software is the global standard for animation and storyboarding. Storyboard Pro and Harmony Solutions provide everyone from enthusiast to professional with the artistic freedom to create in any style and efficiently publish anywhere. For over 27 years, StormFX has been providing the technology that powers the Australian and New Zealand creative industries. Whether your focus is in animation or VFX, we are experienced in providing the technology insights and the solutions you need to get through your challenges and realise your dreams. Let's get back into it. So now I want to move on to your directing. How did you progress into directing? I had gained experience in two major areas of the pipeline of an animation show, which is animation and design. I felt like I'd got a really good handle on how content is created in each of those areas. Okay. Dogstar Series 2 had finished. And the next big project that came from Media World Pictures was the Flame and Thongs. Yep. 
ABC were already on board. And then uh, Media World, Colin South, had said, would you like to put your hand up to be the director of the Flame and Thongs? And I was a little nervous, but I also felt, again, that I'd had quite good experience and a good handle on the major areas of a pipeline of 2D animation. So I said, yes, I would really like to give it a go. I knew that I had a great support team through Colin South at Media World Pictures and Scott Vandenbosch, who was the director of the Dogstar series, had signed on to be the design director of the Flame and Thongs. So I knew I had people around me who had experience to guide me if I had any questions, but also knowing that I had the support of those people was a really good confidence booster for me as well. If you could just explain to us how many episodes were in The Flying Fongs and how long did the production go for? Essentially, it's just 26 quarter-hour episodes. The production probably ran over about a two-year period. Yep. Though with all productions, there's a really big hump in the middle where pretty much everyone is working at the same time. You might have still have storyboard artists and you've got the designers and you've got everybody in between as well as animation and there might even be post-production. I mean, obviously there's animatics going through, but, you know, your post might even be starting to compile some of the early episodes. Yeah. So it starts off quite small. You start off obviously with your script writing team and pre-production team, exploring characters and locations. And then it really, as it ramps up, there's a really big hump in the middle where there's heaps of people working and then it starts to trail off again as departments, you know, finish off. How did you feel in the lead up and the first day of directing? I was a little nervous. However, at each stage, again, I had that support. You know, when I would get outlines or first drafts of scripts, which I had to comment on, Yep. both Colin and Scott would say, okay, these are the types of things you should be commenting on. You should be looking at the full scope of this script. Is it just, is there too many assets that need to be created? Is the script too long? So they're the types of things I was really looking at. And when did you feel like, I'm on top of this, I'm really directing this show? Probably by about ep six or seven in, I really felt like I had a good handle on it. There were lots of things that I'd never done before, you know, how do I give a brief to a composer? What am I looking for there? And Or how do I make music notes on the work that they've supplied? I was quite confident in giving animation briefs. I, I knew what I, I wanted from the acting side of things. Yep. Yeah, even the design of the show was largely set before we started. We knew we wanted a particular style. So as long as I was maintaining that and always looking back to that sort of original scope that we wanted to create, then I knew that I was on the right track. What was the methods you employed to sort of delegate your work better and enjoy that experience? There was this one thing that Brad Bird had said in one of his very short um videos talking about directing and he said that when someone comes to you you might have a whole bunch of things that you might consider priority but if someone has taken the time to walk into your office and say hey I think we've got a problem here or can I talk to you about something it means something to them it's important to them so just because it may not be important to you doesn't mean you shouldn't spend the time trying to work that out yep so I tried to really take that on board with thongs I knew I had to do, you know, X number of things every day, but then people might come to me and say, hey, um, I can't get this working or can I get your eye over this? And I would say, 
yes, I will do that for you right now, even though it's probably the last thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. But I knew it was important to them. So I really tried to make sure that I was supporting my team in the way that they were supporting me. Yeah. Do you feel like you've achieved that now? I would like to think that I have achieved that, that I'm open to listen to people and their opinions about the work. I also try not to micromanage. I really had to step away from opening up a shot and and changing small things. I had to sort of make that choice. Yeah. Am I just changing this because I would like it to be changed? Is it really ready to go through? So it was just stepping back a little from that. Certainly it didn't stop me from opening up some shots, but... I would always ask myself that question first. Um, is what I'm about to change really going to make a big change? And before you said that you weren't sure about things, what did you do when you weren't sure? Sometimes I took a little bit of leap of faith that my input or my feedback was correct. But I think just checking in at, at various parts, especially early on when I'd never done something before, like what are the types of things that I should be looking for here was really important. To be able to have someone guide me in that area was was really, really great. So that was with other people in the production? It was with a few other people in the production, those people who had experience before who were actually part of my team, which was great. Did you go online and or read books or any of that sort of stuff? The one thing that I did look, I mentioned Brad Bird earlier. I watched a video of him what does it take to be a director? It was Brad Bird. And that's when he said that thing that kind of resonated with me about making sure that you're always open to your team yeah, and what's important to them, but may not be important to you. You still have to give it that time and respect. Because a lot of people will have ambition to direct. I was hugely grateful to be offered this opportunity to do that project. I'm sure that you were the right person for the job and that's why they offered it to you. I hope so, yes. (laughs) I was really confident. I, When they said, would you like to do it, I could have flubbed and gone, oh, I'm not really sure. But I knew knew straight away I should seize this opportunity. And so I did. I was really keen and very excited to do it. Let's discuss the importance of stakeholders, sign-offs and revisions. I think a lot of people feel that being the director of something means you have ultimate say. And that's not entirely true. Yeah. There's a lot of investors that do have a say. And for us, we call them stakeholders. Okay. So they could be distributors who put in money. Obviously, the broadcaster has a good say, the executive producers, the producers, and yourself. So it's important that you listen to that feedback as a director you obviously have the right to say, no, I don't really want to do that, but you also need to have very good reasons for saying no, which is perfectly fine. So we have um, various points of the production where it's important that the stakeholders get to have their say. Towards the end, you know, after you might release not your, your, your first rough pass of animation, you might have, you know, the director's cut. Yeah. You need to have input much earlier than that because... It's not as easy to go back and do retakes or change a part of the story in an animation pipeline. Yeah. So we have stakeholders come in at definitely in the initial design stage so that they all have an idea of what it's going to look like. 
And then sort of breaking it down a little bit further, we also really like them to have a say at the animatic stage. So you get them to have a look at the animatic stage and then what happens? They might have a few things um, to input, some things subjective, um, some things objective, like we don't feel like the story's quite working here or we'd really like to see this particular component added in and then as a director you have the choice yes I I can definitely do that or if we change this here we're going to change that there but the storyboard and animatic is really where you want almost all of your problems solved in terms of story cool so this is ep one or pilot stage or what stage are you at this would be you know episode by episode episode by episode so you're doing the animatic and then you get everything ironed out and then you go into doing the final yeah and then you would take once that animatic's been locked then you go you pass it through sort of a a design list or librarian coordinator and they essentially they make a list of every asset that needs to be created from that animatic yeah all the locations all the new characters b characters props if, if a new angle of a character or a prop needs to be created, do we need some special effects that need to be thought about? What is that special effect going to look like? The stakeholders, I imagine, aren't involved in all that. It's more about, you know, once you've got the animatic done, is there still an opportunity for them to, do they get like a final sign-off? No, really. At that point, after the animatic's been signed off by them, like we're happy with this final... Then it goes into design and animation and they probably wouldn't see it again until animation is complete. That being said, they've also had a chance usually to at least have a look at the, we call it fun packs or the concept design for the episodes as well. Any new locations or any new characters, they've at least had that come across their desk to be able to say, oh, I love this new character. She's amazing or he's amazing. Or for instance, I had one client once ask me, can we have this character wear tie-dye rainbow pants and knowing how difficult that would have been to animate, I said, well, how about we give him a rainbow belt? (laughs) When you have those problems or or discussions, describe the way that the relationship works between the director and the stakeholders. As a director, you are trying to create an end product, like a vision, but it's also, it's not just entirely your singular vision. It's the vision of everybody else. So it's important that everybody is going to be happy with the end product. And so that's really what you're trying to get from all that feedback is that everybody is going to be happy. Is that easy to do? Not at times. No, it can be a bit difficult. If you need to say no to something, it's important that you have really good reasons. Yeah. And I think that's important to communicate. You know, if you go, look, I can't do tie-dye rainbow pants on this character because it's an extremely difficult thing to animate. This was back when we were using um, animate as a pipeline. Yeah. So, but being able to offer a compromise and say, but I, I think that's a really funny idea. How about this as a suggestion? I think is really important. So is there any other methods you use to make a successful relationship with the partners? Usually those partners are either overseas or interstate. Yep. If there's an opportunity for them to come in and see this thing that they're also heavily involved in being made, come around, meet the heads of department, I think that just adds so much to their investment into that project. Have you got any production being done internationally? No, but some of the stakeholders are international stakeholders. 
Do you do a lot of video conferencing? No, it generally it can be done just by, you know, bullet points or, or adding to a, you know, a live document of some kind. They would just note a time code, let's say, or they might, um, if they're commenting on a design of fun pack concepts, they might just say, oh, that character, I'd really like them to have bigger hair or if they want small things like that. What are the challenges when communicating with artists and producers and what are your methods of making things go smoothly and get what you want? Ultimately, you're still requiring artists to produce a certain amount of work every single day, every single week. And that can be a really hard slog sometimes. The acknowledgement of how much you appreciate the time and energy and effort they're putting in to make the work for you is really valuable. Yep. And also just being there if they are having a rough time. <laughs> Being able to possibly add, you know, some levity at at points because it can get difficult, especially when perhaps you're in the middle of an episode that has a higher scope than others. Yeah. And there is a lot of pressure there. So being able to sort of offer a tiny break in any way to say, I really appreciate the work that you're doing is a really nice thing to be able to keep people motivated. Well, how do you balance that motivation to meet the stakeholders' expectations without blowing the budget. That's why there's that early sign-off stage at Storyboard Animatic. That's the point when you you can make more drastic changes. Getting everyone on the same page earlier in production rather than towards the end is just going to save you so much more time. Yeah. And it means that people can spend the time on a shot knowing that they don't have to... Although there's the danger that they might have to redo it or you'd want to have more feedback earlier on to save that situation occurring later. And how do you keep people motivated when they have to redo shots? Sometimes you will redo something, and I've had this happen in the past, and you might grumble a little bit about it, but then you might redo something and realise, yeah, it is actually a lot better now. I think sometimes even though it might be annoying to have to redo your work, The second time you do it, it will always be better. And how would you describe your directing style? I think because I've come from a bit more of a production management side, I do understand the pipeline. I understand how, what things are hard to do and what things are easy to do. Yep. I do tend to look at a production from a scheduling and budget point of view. I like to have efficiencies. I like things to be very transparent and I like really good communication. I hope that that maybe is my directorial style. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny because you don't seem like that sort of person. You seem like a relaxed sort of creative person. Sometimes if there's a change, I will always feel, well, how, how much time am I going to have to take away from someone who's working on what they should be doing to fix this problem? Yep. And then I make the choice, is it worth it? That's always really important to keep that in mind as well. The reality is that you are making a product to a particular timeline with a certain amount of money and resources. And if you're going to continue to ask for too much, then the production runs into trouble. What's your day-to-day like? Are you running around? Do you have an office? What do you do day-to-day when you're directing? You're bouncing around from different parts of the production as a director. So in the morning, you might have some notes to be done on animatics, but then 
you might also be so you might be making notes on animation in some of the earlier apps yep but then making uh, going in and cutting an animatic on an episode further down the track so you can bounce from one department to department you know making sure that things are being driven towards a one particular direction in terms of style or making sure that the characters are staying on model. And do you ever do any um, actual hands-on work when you're actually directing as well or is there just no time for that? I would pick and choose. I know when I directed on thongs, I would often open up a shot if I felt especially lip-syncing, that we weren't nailing the lip-syncing. And also character expressions, I would just touch them up as well. I really tried not to micromanage to that level. I, it was only if I had the time to be able to do that or I could set a very small portion aside because it's really what I do love to do. I love to get in and animate and it was almost like a little treat for myself. I'm just going to touch up that eyebrow or, you know, this character I think could be a little bit angrier so I'm going to adjust that expression. I did get in and do a little bit of that, being a little bit more hands-on. How do you direct to get the animation and design to enhance and improve the narrative of the story. I would do the scratch track for the first pass of the animatic. So just to be sure, the scratch track is like an edit that you do of the voices. Yeah, it's me just reading off the script before even animatic. The Are you first recording anim- it and listening back to it? For me personally, I was the one who was cleaning it and cutting it. Okay. So I enjoyed doing that myself. And then you would listen to the uh, scene or the whole episode or? Yeah, I would just listen to it as it is as a scratch track. Yep. And at that point, I got my first opportunity to think visually, how do I want the characters to be acting here? How do I want them to sound? You know, when you see text on a page, it can be read any number of ways and the emphasis can be put on in, in any number. It's, that comes down to the acting The fact that I could do the scratch meant that I could really do a deep dive into visualising exactly what I wanted. That's very interesting. Yeah. Being able to do that as a director, I was having to think about what I wanted in the design and the animation before design and animation had even started by allowing me to do the scratch tracks. Okay. I could really get my head around the visualisation of that episode. Then I could go and brief the storyboard artist, go with the scratch track and say, this is what I'm thinking at this point. I'd really like this type of shot or I really want the emotion to be in this particular line, not trying to, again, micromanage, but just being able to say, this is the most important part of the story. I really want time spent here or, or even just being able to say, look, We've got a chase sequence. Let's just do a whole bunch of whiz pans. I don't want my designers to have to design endless amounts of panning backgrounds. It's really tough. So very early on, I was able to make design and animation choices. And did you work with someone else on the scratch tracks? At the end, it was just me. So I was having to do the male and the female voices, which was heaps of fun. It was just me and one other person just sitting with our iPhone and then I would clean it up. And again, as I was cleaning it, I I would perhaps I might have done a few takes of a particular line and I could make that choice even then. Yep. This one works better than that one. And I see this character acting in this way or operating in the environment in this way. I want them to pick up this particular prop at this point, not earlier, not later. From an early stage of that pipeline, I knew what I wanted 
And do you find that the briefing process is key to getting the results? And do you spend a lot of time preparing for your briefing process or do you just go in and and do it? Because I was a first-time director, I spent time on briefing, uh, making sure that I had made my notes early. It wasn't sort of an on-the-fly thing. Yeah. There may have been a couple on the fly if I was running out of time, but that would have been later on. I, I found it really important for me to be able to process and digest exactly what I wanted and to be able to communicate that really clearly. And being able to do that meant that I had to do my notes early. What's your approach when it comes to technical problems or serious creative failures? A lot of the creative failures or technical problems you would hope to have discovered at least at the pre-production stage. And that's why pre-production is so important Yeah. to make sure that the locations and the characters work together. Surely you have failures like a staff member doesn't deliver or... Oh, are you talking about that sort of stuff? Creative failures. (laughs) You get there and you're like, what the fuck is that? It's very rare to be presented with something is completely out of left field. Like, oh, that's that's completely not what I wanted. I think it's just because, yeah, the the, uh, the briefing process is so specific. And often we've done tests. You know, we will have done a walk test or a run test. And so that's indicative of how a character will move or we've, we've already put together an expression chart. Yeah. So one character might be slightly more an angrier character than another, but it's really just giving those parameters to your artists on where the sort of the edges of where they can push to. It's because it's so iterative and the process is so set up that it's hard to have a big failure. Is that what you're saying? I think so, yes. And because we've been through numbers of series, I feel like we're experienced enough to know that we need to spend time here. And because if we spend the time here, then it will alleviate any problems here, here and here. How do you keep a consistent quality of work across the series when you're directing different design and animation artists? Having strong pre-production component, so a lot of the master locations, master designs have already been set and signed off on for a start is very important. Ongoing, I think the other important thing is that people are able to see other people's work, having regular rushes, watching episodes, and then just being able to sit next to someone or say, I'm having real trouble with this shot. Can you just have a look at it and see what's going on? Being very open in the team um, and being able to have viewable work is really important because everybody needs to be animating in the same way. Yeah. That can be hard. Everyone needs to be designing the same way as well. And how do you keep the standards consistent? Pulling people up when they're not using the right texture tool or, or the right lighting that comes down to the heads of, really. And do you have like a daily process? There is definitely group reviewing. And there's always a group brief before episodes begin. Certainly early on when the, there's a ramp up period for people, when we're reviewing work, that will happen a lot more than later on in the production once everyone's bedded in and they got the style down. Sometimes it can be as simple as getting a piece of work and Again, trying not to make, you know, one artist uncomfortable, but being able to go through that piece and saying, okay, let's just move this around, shift this, is really a good learning tool for the other artists. Yeah. 
We also have process documents as well. Something as simple as this is how your Photoshop file should be structured. This is how your Toon Boom file should be structured, your Animate file. That sort of stuff also helps to make sure everyone's on the same page. And as a director, do you approve all those things as they're being made? You have a certain say in it, but also you need to let your heads of be able to manage that too. They're going to be the ones who are going to be managing that much more than you. Yeah, and you work with your heads as like a, a, a mini group of leaders, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What makes a studio perform well and have a good culture? Different studios do have their own culture. It comes down to having a great project is always really good. Yeah. Also, what I had mentioned earlier, just being appreciative of how much time and energy people who sit down at their desk and they're trying to make something amazing for you. You, There's so much belief in this project and you want your artist to believe in that project as well. And being able to say, thank you so much, you just added so much to this is the best way to have a team who's just going to put their whole heart into that project with you. So lots of positive reinforcement and feedback. Definitely, yeah. Positive feedback saying, this was really nice. I really love the way you did that. There's always going to be feedback, which is constructive, (laughs) which is, hey, how about we work towards this? Yep. You know, it's that compliment sandwich, like you're doing so well here. Just continue on that path. It's, It's amazing. Let's work on these couple of little areas here. Thank you very much. You're, you're doing a great job. Is there any one particular thing that you'd recommend to a first-time director to concentrate on? I found as a first-time director, I came to it thinking, oh, it's all going to be on my shoulders. But you've got to understand that there's so many other people involved too. Let them have their input. And if it's a great suggestion, take it. It's still a team project. So let that team support you and you support them. Good answer. So having kids, you've, you've had some. I've had two children, yes. Fantastic. <laughs> this. Um, how has having kids affected your career and the way that you work? Obviously, the uh, opportunity for me to stay late and just keep working on something isn't there anymore. I find that my time management is paramount and I don't fluff around perhaps as much as I would have in the past. Yep. And also, if I just don't have the time to do something anymore, I will openly say, I will get to that tomorrow and I'll have that to you by tomorrow afternoon. I just can't do it today. I've got a lot on my plate. And generally, people are really good about that. As long as you say, it's on the radar, I will get to it. Just maybe not in the next two hours because I still have a lot to do. I think you said that to me this week. Oh, did I? <laughs> <laughs> and any advice for creative industry women who would like to have children? Don't not do it, that's for sure. In this day and age, we're really finding that the balance is coming back. Family is wonderful. Definitely go for it. Yep. Production schedules now are aware of balance for people who have families, for people who don't have families. And it's the way to get the best out of your performance as an employee. By having a family and saying, I need to leave at 5.30 or being open about, I'm going to come in at 8.30, I'm going to leave at 5.30, that as long as everything is clear, 
then I think that's perfectly fine. You're not going to do less work because you have to leave at 5.30 than before in the past when you might have just hung around for a bit longer. You're just going to be smarter in the way that you work during the day. I don't think having a family is any hindrance now to being a successful artist, being a designer or an animator. And what would you say to those women who had bigger aspirations, who wanted to run their own studios? That would be more difficult because the more responsibility you have running a company or wanting to be a partner in a company means that you will need to spend some brain space outside of work hours thinking about things, mulling over things, because perhaps the decisions you have to make regarding the running of that company or how we're going to go in a particular direction are things that need time and space. So you might find that your spillover isn't necessarily sitting at a desk, but you might need a bit more space mentally to think about those sorts of larger problems than if you just perhaps were an animator who had to come in and, okay, these are my shots, I've got to get this done. Would you say possibly maybe to try and get as far ahead as you can before you have children in the starting and running of the business? Well, I was lucky in that I had been asked to be the director on Thongs before I had children. So now that I'm back, I know that I have those skills. Yeah. While you're on leave, and this would be for any parent, you have to understand that the skills that you have prior to having some time off They don't devalue. You still have those skills. It's not like you have to come back and regain them. Know that when you come back, you might be a little bit rusty. It's just like getting back on a bike. They will just come back very quickly. But don't ever feel like you have to start from the beginning again. Do you think the 2D animation industry is sustainable in Australia? And do you think that it's going to grow? To be honest, I'm not sure that it's going to grow. There will always be a 2D animation industry. It really just depends on how does subscription services, free-to-air, how are they going to fund new content being made? That's an issue, as well as making sure that the Australian voice is still heard for the Australian people. We're a little in danger of having that drowned out. Yeah. If we can come to a solution on that, you know, the industry is very sustainable. And do you think that the ABC is really going to be the main funding body for Australian uh, production into the future? Or do you think that the new streaming services are going to add money to the Australian production development? If the Australian government have a, a mandate that they must produce a certain amount of quota of Australian content to be able to um, run their services here, that would be good. At the moment, the ABC, you know, it's part of their charter to tell Australian stories And they are the main producer of kids' TV shows. They're doing their utmost best. And I love the ABC. Cool, so do I. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And should I say, we've worked with the ABC on a number of productions and they're fabulous to work for. They're really lovely people to work with. What's in the future for you? Do you have any aspirations or plans or ideas? It's funny, as I've gone through my career, like when I was an animator... I wanted to make something that had amazing animation and then I sort of got a little bit more in the design side and I was like, I just want to make something that's really beautiful. Yeah. And now that I have a young family, all that's changed again and now I'm really keen to make something that has a message that is beautiful, well animated, 
I just keep adding, adding all these layers in that I know as a parent, I would be happy for my child to watch. So my future, I would love to be the creator, not necessarily the director. I want to make a show that my children will love watching and that maybe in many years to come, somebody else might say, I watched that show when I was a kid. I loved it. Cool. That's a fantastic way to end it. Thanks once again for taking the time and recording this interview. No problems. It's been a real delight to be here. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Kelly at www.quellfield.com.au Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.